texts and reading for this morning. If you don't have your own Bible, our ushers have Bibles available, just raise your hand and they'll bring a Bible to you that you can use throughout our service. Romans chapter 6. Let's all stand in respect to the reading of God's holy word. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin, will not, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the, from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you would remain standing with me, let's pause, bow our heads for a moment of prayer. 
Thank you, Father, for your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our understanding so that we can receive your word. May it challenge our hearts, shake us in those things that need to be shaken, and encourage us in those things that need to be encouraged. May your word produce fruit in our lives today as we hear it. Be with Brian as he preaches this morning, that you would help him as he has prepared for your word, that you would help him to present it now with your energy and your spirit going behind the words that he uses, that it might come from you and that we might hear what you have to say. Now, now Lord, we pray for this, um, this body of believers here at Sweet Communion. We pray for those who have struggled or are struggling with their health. Uh, we think of uh, Sister Lola Spears here today, thanking you for her. Uh, we ask that you just continue to bless and encourage her, help her testimony to go along through her family, that you might use it for your glory. For, for Sister Minnie Kathy, we pray for her, Lord, that you would uh, encourage her heart, help her in her health and her strength, Lord. We pray for my wife Donna, Lord, that you would just continue to watch over and be with her and bless her. Uh, for Michael and the the uh, issues that he has had recently, that you would just continue to heal. We thank you for the good news that he's heard uh, from the doctor this week, and we pray, Lord, that you would just continue to, to watch over him. We pray for his dad, Mac, and his continued uh, health, and that you would just continue to use him to encourage others and uh, um, watch over and bless him, provide and protect him in his health as well. So, Lord, we pray that you would uh, be with my dad as well, and you would just uh, help him as he uh, not well enough to be at service, that you would just use his life and his testimony for your glory and give him grace to deal with the challenges of health that he has right now. So Lord, thank you for each one here today. And thank you for those who, who come to, to hear your word, and may you bless those, each one who hears your word. And we just pray this now in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Praise God. Praise Him for bringing me to this point. I praise God for the opportunity to preach His Word and to be instructed and formed by His Word. I've just been, um, we've had a busy week. This week, uh, me and Heidi did. We got some car troubles earlier in the week. And after that, we had to, I had to attend a conference for pastors, and that was good. It's a training for pastors, and we train in God's Word. And to do that, you got to prepare basically two sermons worth of stuff, and they, they critique you and everything, and that's, it's good. It was a lot of growth in that. But then towards the end of the week, you know, I got sick, and I'm still battling through that sickness, but the Lord put a word in my mouth, and I want to speak something to you because whether we're feeling good or not, God has supplied all of our need. 
he's given us what we need to do the work that he called us to do whether we physically feel the energy to do what God has called us to do doesn't matter but what does matter is that God gave me a word he wanted me to preach it he wanted you to hear it he knew we would be here he knew we would hear the choir sing before and that the praise would go out and that the spirit would be alive in me and in you he knew the different things that led to this moment for both me and you he's not surprised that I'm sick he's not surprised whatever you have gone through this week it's all in his purpose there's no surprises with God God doesn't have a plan B and so Let's just pray that God's word goes out despite all the things that we might see as be obstacles, but for God, they're just opportunities. Dear Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your word that it will go forth. We thank you, Lord, for giving us your truth and calling us to be your servants. Lord, we pray that you will bless us, Lord. We pray especially for those who couldn't make it, Lord. I think about this word and I think about many who you brought to my mind as I was preparing this and some of them didn't make it this morning who will be helped the most and that's just how Satan works Lord so I pray that you just bless us in your truth and be encouraged in your word in your name we pray amen Romans 6 empowered by grace or enfeebled by our misunderstandings the book of Romans is a long book, but it's a powerful book. And it's a book about how the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And through it, it revealed the obedience of faith as foretold by the prophets. As you look in Romans, you start to see more and more the power of the gospel. You start to see more and more God's righteousness revealed. You start to see more and more how we need God's mercy. You start to understand more and more how we have been saved, the operation of how we've been saved. Then you get to chapter 6. Romans starts off with God's wrath, how all of us are condemned. There is none righteous, no, not one. We all have followed and walked in the wrath of God. Even those who judge others walk in the same sins that they judge others for. Nobody is excused, whether Jew or Greek, whether black or white, whether male or female. Nobody is excused. Even if we look at the heroes, heroes of our faith, we can see giant mistakes that they've made. Things that even we might not have done. We got to say that they're not saved by their works. They're saved by God's mercy. We start to understand a little bit about God's justification. How God, through his mercy, declares us to be righteous. But that in itself does not make us in our heart perfect. In his courtroom, he stamps the gavel and he says... Brian, the blood of my son rests on you. I now see you as righteous. But in my heart, I know I'm still a liar. 
I know I'm still faithless. I know I'm still a luster. I know I'm still selfish. I know I'm all these things, but God sees me as righteous. And I can't help but thank God, but I know that in my heart, I'm still not perfect. And so then how can God let me into heaven when I'm not perfect, when his standard is perfect? We can only say that he lets us into heaven through his grace. It's his grace. But it's not the kind of grace that excuses sin because then God wouldn't be just. It's the kind of grace that looks at sin and pays for that sin. It says there has to be a penalty for wrong. And if we look at Scripture, we have to say, I agree. And Jesus says, I'll take that penalty. And we say, you will? And after he takes that penalty and bears that wrath, we become new creatures. But where God speaks, Satan tries to twist the truth for his own devices. And so we see in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, it says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Think about Adam, he sinned. Now we're all sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Because Jesus obeyed God, we can be considered to have obeyed God. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. In other words, we wouldn't even have known what sin was if it wasn't for a law. If God didn't tell us, don't steal, we would not have understood the value of what property and what stealing means to God. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can't help but praise God when we hear that, right? Can't help but praise God when you hear it, but that kind of understanding leads to misconceptions. Misconception number one that Paul is going to deal with in this passage is grace is a license to sin. Some people think that. What they think is, is this. I can do sin because God is going to forgive me anyway. It doesn't really matter. It's not really going to count anything against me. Other people preach it this way. God is a loving God. He's not going to judge us. We have his grace. Other people preach it this way. In the Old Testament, God was all about judgment. But in the New Testament... It's all about forgiveness. And in all these ways, they twist the Bible. Just like Satan twists the Bible. Satan always works to twist the word of God. In fact, God's word is his most powerful tool to twist. You could think of it as if you're fighting somebody that has a gun and you don't have a gun. But you're not without hope. 
Because if somehow you could take that gun from them, you could use the weapon that they were going to use to slay you to slay them. And that's what Satan does. He doesn't really have a weapon that's going to work against us. But he knows that the word of God is powerful and piercing. And so if he could somehow twist that sword and make it stab you instead of him, he might accomplish a victory. Isn't that what he did in the Garden of Eden? Did God say? But God did say. But he twists God's words to make it seem like God was withholding some good from Eve. So that Eve might think that all good things are not in God. And that God envied man. Isn't that what he did to Jesus? You look at all the temptations of Jesus, they all open up with Satan quoting the scripture. He's sitting there saying, didn't God say? It is written. And what he likes to do is he likes to twist the things that we think of as good and use them to hurt us. And the same in this passage. Paul says, where sin abounds all the more, grace abounds even more. And somebody is going to say, that I can sin all I want. So should we sin so that grace abounds? Well, Paul, he start off and he just say, no! There's an exclamation there. And I don't think that's just in the English. I think that's what he really means. Because when you read it the right way, this is an emphatic no. This is no. I got to stop it right there. This is the same kind of no that Jeremy was talking about in Sunday school this morning. Where Peter was sitting there saying, we should set up a tent for Elijah and set up a tent for Moses. No, this is my beloved son. You notice it said in that passage, while he was still speaking, God interrupted him. And so here, Paul interrupts our evil thought, right? Well, if, I, if that's the truth, then I can sin as much as I No! We shouldn't do that. That's the basis of many evil religions. But sin is against everything that we are saved from. It's what Paul says. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? What did we get saved for? What did we get saved from if not the power of sin? So how can we be saved from the power of sin and then be delivered now again to sin? We die to sin. Well, we might say, well, how do we die? Well, Paul says this through our union with Jesus Christ. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And what he's talking about is this. For those of us who have been saved, we got this invisible tie with Jesus. That's what grace is. Grace is this tie between us and Jesus. And when Jesus died, we died. When Jesus lives, we live. It's just like baptism. In baptism, we step into the water. 
And the water is supposed to symbolize death. And the preacher takes us and lays us down under that water. And that symbolizes how we die with Christ. But we can't come out of that water under our own power. And in under that water, I think a lot of people, sometimes you'll see some people flail a little bit because they panic. They think to themselves, I can't breathe. I don't want to be here, but I don't have the power to do anything about it. And that's what our state is when we're unsaved. We know we're in danger, but we can't do anything. And we need the power of somebody else to bring up us out of that water and into the life that is in air. And that's what it is for us. That's why we baptize. That's why we preach about Jesus, because Jesus has a practical meaning for our life. It's not just a theological understanding where you can go and say, yeah, you know, I know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. No, rather is this. If we truly believe in faith, we have this connection with Jesus. And in that connection with Jesus, we died when he died. And in that connection with Jesus, we rose when he rose. Now, Paul, Paul further explains that. He talks about, in verse 5 through 7, when Jesus died, we died. Our old self was crucified with him. And what he means is this. When Jesus died, he took on all of our sins. And I know that's something that we talk about, and it seems so simple, but it is not simple. Because when Jesus died, he took our sins with us. And the reason that we don't believe that Jesus had to go to hell is because when Jesus died, he bore all God's wrath. There was no need for him to do anymore because when he was done, he said, it is finished. And when he was saying it was finished, he was looking at you and me and said, I paid for all your sins. I've done my work. It is finished. And so we ought to see that through his death, our sins have been killed. But then, in verse 8 through 11, his life means we live. I'm thinking of that him because he lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, sing it, what is it? All sin is gone. That hymn is so true. Because what it means is this, his life is not just something that we just talk about. Yeah, he rose on the third day. He rose. Now there's something special about Jesus rising. Because there's other people who have been risen in the scriptures. Actually, rising people from the dead is rare. We don't see it often. As far as I understand it, other than the New Testament, we only see Elijah doing that in the Old Testament. And Elisha doing it. And every time that somebody was rose, I noticed that they died again. But Jesus' resurrection is different than their resurrection. Because just when Jesus died, he didn't die again. 
And so we who died with Jesus, therefore rise with Jesus, it's impossible for us to die again. Just like Jesus. And if our sins died with Jesus and they're buried with Jesus, and Jesus says it is finished, those sins are finished. And if we rise apart from those sins, then we rose, we can't go back down there with them. We now live. And if we live, then we must be sanctified. Now what is sanctification? Sanctification means we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. Now, sanctification is something that Romans talks about. It is an act of grace. Romans goes through and teaches us the different acts of grace. Sanctification is the progressive work of God and man that leads us to be conformed to the image of his son. But you'll notice this. When we talk about the acts of grace, it is oftentimes just God doing it. It is God who chose. It is God who gave us life. It is God who adopts us. But when you talk about sanctification, yeah, it is God who sanctifies, but he wants us to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. What does it mean to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ? That means that we have to keep in our minds, right? In other words, this is an act of faith. We have to keep in our minds that the old things that we used to do do not hold attachment to us anymore. And that's not easy. Just because it's an act of grace doesn't mean it's an act of ease. And so we have to consider the fact that when God is working in us, that doesn't mean that things are going to be easy, but it means that it is something that has to be done. Because look what he says in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Could we let sin reign? If we couldn't, the passage would not be written that way. He says, don't let sin reign. Because if you do nothing, sin will reign. If you don't consider yourselves dead to sin, sin will be alive in you and will be thriving. If you don't strive, you will fail. So don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments. We have to consider ourselves instruments. And the thing I know about an instrument, playing a few of them is this. No matter how good an instrument is, it's only as good as the one that's playing it. We're either going to be in the hands of Satan, playing a melody of death, or we're going to be in the hands of God, playing the melody of life. 
And that actually is up to us. How will we be used? He says, present yourself. I think of us jumping and turning into a clarinet or turning into a bass and saying, who am I going to let use me? Oftentimes, that's the choice that we have when we go through life, right? We go through and somebody steps on our toe. We got to say to ourselves, am I going to let God use me or Satan use me? Who is going to play the melody here? And we got to remember, we don't have an excuse. Oftentimes people say, well, you know, I couldn't help it, blah, blah, blah. He says, sin should have no dominion over you. What does dominion mean? Mastery, overpowering us. Therefore, if sin is overpowering us, it is because we have presented ourselves to it. In other words... All spiritual acts are consensual. Satan is not taking people. People are offering themselves to Satan. People say, well, you know, I was, I got pushed into doing this. I was for No, you wanted to do that. And until we admit that that's why we sin, we cannot confess our sins properly. The biggest problem I've found with people confessing sins is that they don't want to admit how bad sin is. How much of it is them? Oh, yeah, you know, she really made me mad. You know, when I just, I lost my control. Yeah, yeah, I did lose control, but you know, she was kind of making me mad all the whole day. She was working on me all that week, you know what I'm saying? And things went to this place and that way. And next thing you know, man, I was swinging. All right. How did you get to that state? You had to present yourself to Satan. People say stuff like, I slipped up and, you know, I went outside my marriage. And that just, it sounds so quaint, you know. Anybody can imagine slipping, you know. You walk and you didn't realize there was ice there. Whoop, you slipped, you know. But I've never seen nobody get into a sexual relationship like slipping. It seemed to me like you got to do a lot of work for that to go on. That's how we talk about sin, and that is how Satan jumps into our conversations about sin. In other ways, we talk about sin as if it's not a sin. It's a medical condition. Oh, you know, I'm not worrying. I'm just, I just got panic attacks. Oh, no, I'm not worrying. I just, you know, sometimes I get overstressed, and I didn't take my stress medication, and therefore I, I did, uh, you know, I need you to be more patient with me. And I say, yeah, you know, you do need me to be patient, but let's not lie to ourselves and think that that is not the sin of worrying. Oh, you know, I'm bipolar. Well, that's called the sin of lack of self-control. And people might say, well, the doctor can measure the chemical imbalance in me. Well, I'm not surprised. Sin has a physical impact on you, as does righteousness. But that is no excuse. We have to understand the part we play in sin and in righteousness. And until we are honest that it is us and nobody else, 
can we truly repent? The next misconception is this. Grace lacks the power to compel obedience. Another way of thinking about it is this. If we really believed in grace, people would just do whatever they want. So we better establish some rules so that people might understand what's right and wrong. And grace doesn't really tell us what's right and wrong. Under grace, we don't have to obey those rules. People will say stuff like, well, you know, in the New Old Testament, they talk about homosexuality. But in the New Testament, we under grace. You know, Jesus ain't talk about that. People will say it in many different ways. But for us as Christians, the practical thing about it is this. We might be tempted to think that in the Old Testament, they had all these laws. And you could understand why they obeyed because somebody was sitting there with a stone, Right? You're going to say, hey, man, you know, I might commit adultery, but hey, somebody got a rock. And that could happen to me, right? When you got grace, you don't you realize there's no rock. And so we start to think that righteousness has less force in the New Testament than it does in the Old. But is that really true? Paul says this, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. And he leads them into this thought of this. Our life declares our master. Whoever we obey, we enslave ourselves to. Now, we might say to ourselves, really? But you can see it, obviously, when you look at something like drugs, right? If you start to obey drugs, you get addicted to drugs, and then you have to do what drugs tell you to do, right? So something like a cocaine or a heroin, it will take over your life to the point where you do what it tells you to do. And if you don't, it will crack the whip and hurt you. And that's why we have things like relapses and things like that, because the sin itself is enslaving you. You might say, well, bro, I've never been addicted to drugs. But then I'll bring it to something that is something like sexual activity, right? You can be addicted to that. It is something that once you do, you have established now a need for it. Before you did it, you may not have had a need for it, but now you've done it, you now have a need. And this need can drive you. And all you need to do is sit at a bar near bar time and look at the eyes of some of these guys and realize it is compelling them to act the way that they act. Or all you have to do is look at the way these girls dress in the line to the club and see it is compelling people to act the way they act. You might say, I'm not as bad as that. But then what about food? I love some good Greek food. And if you eat a food that you like, there are times where that food will just whisper your name. <laughs> and you will hear it. It'll whisper. We getting cops tonight. Melted cheese, fried onions, them fries. Sometimes they don't even say no words. You just go, ooh! And you sit there and you say, it's compelling me. I got to get it. If I don't get it today, I'm going to be mad. 
You might see the same thing with something like coffee or whatever it is for you. It's something that's going to draw you. You keep getting pulled by it. You got to do it. You can't break it. If you don't have it, you're going to be mad. It's compelling you. You may say, well, I don't have those things, or maybe I don't understand that. But then I think of something as simple as admiration or attention. How something as simple as respect can draw us to the point where we start doing more and more foolish things. I think of myself. How sometimes because of a a desire for respect, I will do things. And I get addicted to the feeling of someone else respecting me. To the point where I speak when I shouldn't. And I'm silent when I should speak. And I start to get compelled more and more and more and start to realize I can become a slave to something that seems to be good, like respect. Whoever you are, whatever your sin, whatever your flavor is, if you obey that sin, you will become enslaved to it. But if you obey God, you will become enslaved to him. You know, I've never regretted doing something for the Lord. When I preach his word, sometimes I regret that I got to study to preach his word. But when I'm done preaching it, I'm always happy that I preached it. And I start to get addicted to that feeling of preaching his word. And you know what? I want to preach it again. And I want to preach it better, and I want to preach it more intensely and more accurately. And when I come and I praise God, and I don't necessarily like to praise him as much as singing as some other people, but I like to praise with my instrument. When I praise God with my instrument, I just get more and more addicted to that. To the point where I could play and I could jam for hours. And I could look up at the clock and it feels like five minutes done gone by, but three hours have passed. I get addicted to that. See, because if you find what you like to do in righteousness, you can also be addicted to that too. And I think one of the struggles of faithfulness is that people have not tried enough righteousness to get hooked by it. You can't get addicted to sitting down on your seat. I mean, I guess you can, but that's not going to be righteousness. Now, you can get addicted to hearing a preacher preach a good word. Oh, man, what a feeling that is, right? You can get addicted to the conviction of God's word. You can get addicted to the Holy Spirit's encouragement. You can get addicted to hearing the praise and how that sets your heart on fire. You can get addicted to certain songs and how that inflames you to obey God. You can get addicted to encouraging other brothers. You get addicted to having Bible study. You can get addicted to reading your word. You can get addicted to praying for other people. You can get addicted to hearing how other people are praying for you. You can be addicted to those things too, and that's not bad. God says we're going to be addicted to something that better might as well be good, right? There's people in this room that like to exercise. You know what? 
they set themselves to do it and they get addicted to it. And you know what? I can't blame them. It's better than being addicted to a cheeseburger, right? So you got to set yourself up so you're going to be enslaved to something. It might as well be something that is good. If we are addicted to sin, that is going to lead to death. If we are addicted to good, that's going to lead to righteousness. And the whole thing that Paul is saying is this. You don't have to make a law for people that want to do good because they get addicted to doing good and they keep doing good. But if you feel like you got to make a law for people, you better start going back and asking, are they even alive? If I have to make 50 laws for you to stop wearing a, a dress that reveals everything that you got to church, I got to ask myself, are you addicted to the Lord or are you addicted to the attention of arousing somebody else's sexual attention in you? You have to ask yourself, what are you addicted to? Do I have to make more laws for you or do you have to love Christ more? I think the answer to that is real simple. The solution is not in laws. The solution is, have we done enough righteousness to get addicted to it? He says, but thank God you were saved. And what he's talking about is this, that sanctification is impossible without salvation. I believe a lot of people in churches are frustrated. They come and they clean themselves up and they say, I'm going to go to church because I've had all these bad things happen. And so they go to church and then they get frustrated because they can't do sanctification without salvation. It's part of the process, but it is a necessary part of the process. Don't get me wrong. See, because to be sanctified, you first got to be elected. You have to be somebody that God chose before the foundation of the world and said, I love that brother. I love that sister. He will be with me. She will be with me. You have to have heard the gospel call. The gospel had to be given to you, didn't it? You had to hear the word of God that hurt here that Jesus Christ died for sinners. And you had to think, I'm a sinner. You had to hear that and believe it. You had to believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again and he offered eternal salvation for you. You didn't necessarily understand every single point of that, but you understood that if you believed in this gospel, you would be saved. You had to understand that only God could regenerate and give life to the soul. You had to understand that you needed to be converted, that you need to repent from your sinful ways and have faith in Jesus Christ. You had to understand that you need to be justified, that God has to declare you right in his law. His book in heaven has to have Jesus' stamp on it for you to get in. You have to understand that you need to be part of God's family so that he calls you child and you call him father. And if you can't have that relationship, you will not get into heaven. But the thing about adoption is also this. As he calls us child and as we call him father, biblical children do the work of their father. And that leads directly to our sanctification. As we get set apart to do God's will, we start to be, the next step, filled with his Holy Spirit more and more. And as we are filled more and more with his Holy Spirit, 
we start to understand that nothing can take us away from God's salvation. Nothing can. The moment we're saved, we're in the grip of God. And no amount of our will can take us out of his grip. And everybody who has been saved will be glorified with God in heaven forever and ever. Amen. He describes salvation as obedient to the heart of the doctrine. And what he is saying is this, we have to not only understand the truth, we have to want the truth somewhere in here. We got to obey the truth somewhere in here. That's why he says in verse 19, you kind of can see he breaks it out because he, he, he basically is being very blunt. He's talking, he's talking, and then you can imagine him just taking you aside and say, hey, listen, I'm saying all this in illustrations because you are limited. Isn't that what he said? Verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitation. But just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. I'm not playing with you now. I ain't playing no games. Understand this if you don't understand anything at all. Stop being a slave to sin. If God saved you, it's a despicable act to go back into slavery. That's like having won the Civil War and then want to go back to the slave master. That's disgusting. That's like police saving you from a kidnapper and you wanting to go back. That's disgusting. That's like the pig wanting to wallow back in the mire. That's disgusting. That's like the dog going back to his vomit. That's disgusting. How can we, having been saved from how bad sin is, now go back into it? If it doesn't disgust you, have you been saved at all? And he starts to talk about the moral economy. And his equation is this. When you work for sin, good didn't you do you any good. And you earn death. When you were a sinner, doing good didn't do you any good. What good is telling the truth when you rob somebody? It's just going to get you a bigger sentence. In other words, sinners don't benefit from doing good, so we tell them, oh, just do good. They don't do them any good. They know that. <coughs> you came in late to work, and your boss didn't see you. You're going to lie. Why not lie? If you tell the truth, you're just going to get written up, so you probably should lie, right? I'm a sinner. What good does doing good do me now? But ultimately, you get the paycheck, and the paycheck is death. But when you work for God, sin does you no good. Right? Just like for the sinner, doing good doesn't do him any good. For the righteous person, doing sin doesn't get us anywhere. Some people like to lie about the gospel and say things way above what it is. It doesn't do you any good to do that. 
That's what we learned in Sunday school. We learned that also in our class when me and Dale was in that class and we were training with all these other pastors. It's called hold the line. That's the lesson they gave. And the whole thing about it is that God's word is like a line and we don't want to go above it. We don't want to go below it. We don't want to sit there and pretend that we can promise more than God can promise. Because what do you do when you do that? You get disappointed. And you also don't want to underdeliver on what God has promised. If God said he's going to do this, and you say, yeah, he's going to do this. You're going to weaken God's power. You got to go where God is. So when you work for God, sin does you no good. But the free gift is life. Because you can never earn eternal life. I say all this to say this. Grace means the power to fight sin, not the liberty to engage in it. Oftentimes, people think about grace and they say, oh, you know, give him some grace. And what that means is, hey, he sinned, don't say nothing about it. In reality, grace is our connection with Jesus Christ, that when he died, we died. When he lives, we live. Satan will try to twist the good of grace into evil. He'll either use it so that we get all lax and say, well, you know, anything goes, or he'll use it for us to think that grace is weak, and then we become legalists and make all these rules. But at the end of the day, grace is what saves us. Grace is what makes us saints. We must understand that salvation frees us from darkness. And salvation starts the process that leads to good works. Look at Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. In other words, God didn't save you for no reason. He saved us to do the work that he called us to do, and that work is good works. In other words, he saved me to preach and to play music and to lead God's people. And he saved you to do whatever he called you to do. But don't you dare think he saved you for you to sit in that pew. Don't you think he saved you so you can go back and sin and that can be an excuse for you? Don't think that you can be saved so that you can sin and God to say, I forgive you. That's okay. Don't think you got that kind of master in heaven because he's not. Do not fool yourself. And don't miss that it's Jesus' death and resurrection that enable us to fight sin. Now, I'm not going to fool myself into thinking that everybody in this room is saved. Because this message is mainly about sanctification, but you have to understand this. Sanctification is not possible without salvation. For you to be saved, you must understand this, that Jesus Christ died on a cross for our sins, that he bore the wrath of God for us. Wrath that we deserved, he died and rose again, just as he promised he would do. 
And when he rose again, he showed God's victory over sin and death. And those who put them, their trust in Jesus Christ will rise too. Other people in this room need to be encouraged because they think that if I just have more faith, I'll somehow have more results. As if the energy of our mental power is going to empower us to do more good. And we heard an illustration of Simeon Trust about two Jews. They were talking to each other before the Passover. Both of them had put blood above the, the doorpost. And one of them said, I fully trust that God is going to save me because I put the blood above the doorpost. The second one said, I'm nervous, man. I put blood above my doorpost. I don't know. I mean, is it any better than red paint? I'm worried about this, man. Is this really going to work? So the next day, that night, this angel of death came through. Which one of them was saved? Both of them. Because it doesn't depend on how much energy <laughs> that both of them put into that blood. What matters is the blood. And that's what our faith is relying on. It's not relying on our mental energy. It's not relying on how much we force ourselves and say, I believe even harder. It's based on the blood of Jesus Christ. That's above the doorpost. And if we trust in him, his wrath will pass over. But if we don't trust in him, there will be sadness. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your word and your truth. We pray that you bless us, Lord, to understand more and more of your ways. We want to understand your truth, Lord. I pray, Lord, if there is any who have not been saved, Lord, if they don't understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins, that they might come and repent. Peter says, come and be converted. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in many ways, Lord, some people are trying to do good instead of understand that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. But sometimes our inability to do good will make us wake up to the fact that we have a need. And so I pray, Lord, that that need will compel us to fall on our knees before you and pray for your mercy. In your name we pray. Amen.